to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses, uh, verse 41 through chapter 21, th- uh, verse 4. So Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. You'll recall that Jesus is currently in his Passion Week. And last week we saw the Sadducees taking their turn at challenging Jesus and his authority. And in verse 39, at the end of that passage we considered last week, we witnessed that the scribes liked the answer that that Jesus gave. Teacher, you have spoken well, verse 39. And the scribes and the Sadducees were arch rivals. What these scribes may be doing is they may be uh, speaking condescendingly to Jesus. Well done, student. You may one day reach our level. And so Jesus now turns and addresses the scribes and offers a question to them. So Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy an inspired word to you this morning. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. One way you can think of this chapter, Luke chapter 20, is like that of a boxing match. (laughs) Those in the ring are Jesus and the religious leaders. The temple courts are the ring. The audience consists of the disciples as well as these Jewish people at large. And as you know, so far in Luke chapter 20, the religious leaders have been on the attack. Putting question after question before Jesus, trying to challenge his authority, trying to trip him up, trying to get him in trouble with somebody, either the Roman authorities or the Jewish people. But blow after blow, Jesus responds with these profound questions, questions that silence his interlocutors. But now in this passage, you see that things flip. Jesus now goes on the attack. And he puts a question before the scribes. And he also 
indicts them, indicts them for their hypocrisy, indicts them for their failure to care and, and shepherd for the weak, uh, the weak sheep of Israel. It's as if when Jesus is, is going on the attack here, he, he looks over to his disciples and says, watch and learn. Beware of the scribes. Don't be like my opponents. Be like me. So what I'd like us to do this morning is to consider this, this offensive attack that Jesus puts before the scribes. We'll consider how he indicts them for failing to interpret the scriptures. He indicts them for their hypocrisy, and he indicts them for their failure to shepherd and care for the weak sheep of Israel. As I mentioned, so far in Luke's, uh, in, in chapter 20, the religious leaders have been the ones putting the questions before Jesus. But now Jesus has a question of his own. And he turns to the scribes and he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now Jesus is alluding to a common interpretation at that time in Judaism that the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, was going to be a son of David, was going to come from the line of David. We find this promise articulated in the Davidic covenant, that covenant that God made with David, where he promised that one of his descendants would establish an everlasting throne and kingdom. And Jewish people recognized this. They were hoping and praying for this Messiah, this Christ to come from the house of David. But the Jews in the first century also had a belief, a cultural belief, that sons do not submit to fathers. Sons are duty-bound to show respect and honor to those who are older, to, older than them, authority figures, fathers. They're probably rooted in the fifth commandment. Boys and girls, I'm sure you know that you are supposed to respect and honor your parents, teachers, other authority figures, and when, and when you don't, there may be consequences. These two beliefs that the Jewish people knew intuitively was that the Messiah was going to come from the house of David and that sons don't submit to fathers. I mean, excuse me, fathers don't submit to sons. Got that mixed up. Fathers don't submit to sons. Fathers don't uh, respect and honor their sons. Sons are called to do that. You probably were thinking, what is he saying? Um, and so Jesus is questioning them on this point. And in Psalm 110, which is the psalm that he quotes here, he quotes the first verse. And this psalm is a psalm that's uh, traditionally attributed to David. And in this psalm, in verse 1, David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's as if David has his ear to the ground and he is privy to this eternal divine communication between these two lords, the Lord and his Lord. Now, who are these lords that David is alluding to? Well, in the Hebrew text of Psalm 110, the first Lord, the first reference to the Lord is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, another title for uh, for, for God. So Yahweh says to my Adonai. What's going on here is that this is communication between God the Father and God the Son. 
The Lord says to my Lord, and if you continue to read in Psalm 110, we learn that David's Lord is both a king and a priest. So this figure who sits at the right hand of God is both a king and a priest. He's a king, and this language of him sitting at God's right hand denotes his rule and his authority. All his enemies will one day be his footstool. Remember that distinction we made a few weeks ago? Christ in his first coming comes humbly riding on a donkey, which signifies the fact that his mission and his first coming is to bring peace, peace between God and man. But Revelation says that we are looking forward to a day when Christ will come not on a donkey, but on a war horse, fully subjecting his enemies under his feet. Boys and girls, you probably have, have witnessed a, a movie or a picture of a king on a throne with someone kneeling or laying before that throne. And when you see that scene, what do you think of? Well, you think of a powerful king, a king who's ruling with authority and might. So Jesus is king, but he's also a priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is this is somewhat strange figure who gets only a few verses of airtime in the Bible, in, in Genesis. And he is this, this priest and king who blesses the patriarch Abraham. And he is portrayed as someone who has no beginning and no end. In this literary style, he's, he's presented as somewhat of an eternal character. And Jesus says that, or, and, and, and uh, God says that Jesus comes not after the order of Aaron and the Levitical priest, but after the order of Melchizedek. And this language of Christ sitting also connects to his priesthood. Uh, a number of weeks ago in our catechism service, we reflected upon that contrast that the author of Hebrews makes between the Old Testament priests and Christ as our great high priest. The Old Testament priests stood. They were constantly standing because there, were, there was always another sacrifice to make. They never brought about a definitive forgiveness of sins. There was always something more that needed to be done. They were standing, making repeated sacrifices. But Christ offers a single sacrifice and sits down, sits down at God's right hand, which denotes the fact that Christ completely and fully completed our salvation. Nothing needs to be added to it. He sits. So he sits as our king and he sits as our priest. This is something that would have been very strange for ancient Israel. For them, kings and priests had their own separate lineage, own separate lines. You didn't unite the office of king and priest in one person. In fact, King Uzziah tried to do this. And we learned that when he tried as a king to offer incense in the holy place, he was struck with leprosy. But Jesus displays this perfect union and fusion between the offices of priest and king. The question then that Jesus is alluding to here, the dilemma that he's putting these scribes in is that how can David refer to his son, this messianic son, this Christ who is to come as his Lord? Fathers don't submit to sons in that way. So how can this Adonai be David's son and his Lord? 
And notice the response the scribes have. You won't find one. They're silenced. They're not able to respond to Jesus' question. They likely know that the question that Jesus is wanting will be a confession in his deity and work and mission. They don't want to do that. They're silenced. Crickets. Because the answer to Jesus' question is that David's son is not only the son of David, but he is the son of God, the eternal son of God. Furthermore, Acts chapter 2, Peter uh, takes up this psalm, Psalm 110, and in his Pentecost sermon, and in that sermon, he contrasts David and Christ. David, he, uh, Peter says, is still in the grave in Jerusalem. He never conquered death. Christ did. Christ died, but he rose again and ascended and is seated, according to Psalm 110, seated at God's right hand. And therefore, Psalm 110 doesn't just refer to his divinity, but also refers to his work as the God-man who died, rose, ascended, and is seated presently at God's right hand. That's why David's son can be David's Lord as well. You'll notice now in, in, in verse 45, so Jesus puts this question before them, this question that they are unable to, to answer. And then in verse 45, he directs his attention to the disciples. Remember I told you in this, this boxing match, as it were, the disciples are members of the audience. And he, he turns to the disciples and he says, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. Jesus knows that he will soon be departing this earth. And it's these individuals, and particularly 12 of these individuals, who will carry on the baton of his mission. It's these 12 that will become the new tenants in the vineyard of God's kingdom. Remember that, that, that parable just a few passages ago where Jesus says that God will be replacing the tenants of the vineyard of his kingdom. The religious leaders will be out, and the apostles will carry on that torch. And so Jesus is turning to his disciples and saying, beware the scribes. Don't do what they do when you are a tenant of my vineyard. Don't interpret scripture as they interpret scripture. Don't be hypocritical as they are hypocritical. And don't abuse and oppress my sheep as they abuse and oppress my sheep. So he's pointing to the scribes as a, as a bad example a bad example of how one is to shepherd the people of God. So in verses 46 and 47, he notes the scribes' hypocrisy. So these scribes are those who love to wear long robes. This was a status symbol in the first century. It was a way in which the scribes were able to flaunt to everybody around them that they had membership in elite society. We also read that they love the greeting places in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogue. They love the places of honor at the feasts. Those were, in many respects, the main aspects of society, the marketplace, the synagogue, the feasts. And they had to be number one. They had to have the honorable seat. They had to have all the recognition, the spotlight upon them. 
Recall Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14 when he was dining on the Sabbath with some Pharisees and he says to his disciples that when you have a feast, don't take the honorable seat, rather take the low seat and let the host of the meal bring you up. And he goes on to say, the least of you will be called the greatest and the greatest among you will be called the least. He is saying that, that, that his apostles, his disciples are to be servants of all. Just as Jesus himself came to this earth not to be served, but to serve. We also read that these scribes loved giving long, eloquent public prayers as a means, as a pretext for defrauding widows, the weakest members of society. What may have been going on here is these scribes may have publicly prayed on behalf of these widows, but then behind closed doors defrauded their estates. Jesus alludes to them, them devouring widows' houses. Now, we don't know exactly what this refers to, but it may be referring to the fact that scribes oftentimes took responsibility for uh, the estate of a widow. And as they took that responsibility, many of them took advantage of the widow's home and estate. So on the one hand, they're displaying all this external piety, righteousness, but when it comes to what matters most, caring for the weakest sheep. Widow in the first century was very vulnerable, oftentimes destitute. They're utterly failing. And Jesus says, beware, don't follow that example. And then beginning in chapter 21, we read that as Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples, uh, the rich catch his eye. They're in the temple courts, and in the temple courts, there were these trumpet-shaped receptacles that people would come to bring their freewill offerings. And as Jesus is speaking these words, his eyes catch these, these rich individuals who are coming to bring their rather large offerings uh, to the temple treasury. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees a poor, probably frail-looking widow. And this widow comes and brings two small copper coins so small that they probably didn't even make a clink in the coffer when uh, she put them in. Now, these two small copper coins are, um, or you, if you look in your Bibles, you may have a footnote that says that in the Greek text, this refers to two lepta. And this, the, this amount of uh, currency was somewhere around one one hundredth or 1 128th of a denarius. Denarius was the average uh, daily wage for a worker in the first century. That's not a lot of money. Roughly 1 100th of a day's wage. That's how much she's putting into this offering box. That's how much money we are told she has to her name. If you do the math based on what uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, where five sparrows are sold for two pennies, in the marketplace, boys and girls, in the grocery store of the first century, this may have bought that widow a half a sparrow, maybe one sparrow. And you all probably have seen a sparrow before, small little animals I remember growing up. One of my favorite pastimes as a kid was to shoot sparrows with a BB gun. They're rather disgusting, oftentimes carry disease. They're not appetizing creatures to eat. And all of this widow could buy at the grocery store 
would be a half a sparrow, maybe if she's lucky, a full sparrow. That's it. That's how much money she's putting into this temple treasury. And Jesus is, is pointing her out. Now, the traditional interpretation of this passage is that we are to imitate the example of this widow. We are to be generous givers as this widow is a very generous giver, even though she doesn't have a lot. Now, I do think Jesus is commending her heart. I think she is seeking to faithfully obey her God, seeking to serve her God and, and, um, and be generous. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 does speak in a way that's very similar to what Jesus says here. When he says that we are to give generously in the new covenant, we don't have a specific tithe or percentage. Rather, we have a call to be generous. And this generosity is meant to be motivated from the generosity that we received in Christ. That though he was rich, he became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. That generosity of the gospel is meant to motivate generous giving. However, all that being said, I don't think that the main thrust of this passage is about giving. There are a number of other scholars and commentators who, who disagree with this traditional rendering of this passage. I think the reason why Luke inserts this narrative, this portion about the widow in this section of Luke's gospel is to serve as a further indictment of the scribes. If this widow only has two lepta to her name, she should not be giving it to the temple treasury. Rather, she should be uh, being supported by the scribes themselves. This may be an example of how the scribes are devouring the houses of widows. They may have guilted her into giving all that she has to her name, a sparrow's worth of money to this magnificent temple, which, as Jesus will say next week, is about to be torn down. And the disciples in this moment were listening. If you read on in the New Testament... This passage, among others, were, was very influential upon them. Acts chapter 6, the apostles are beginning this, 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 this work of growing the kingdom of God, and they don't have the bandwidth to care for the widows. So what do they do? They establish a new office, the diaconate, to care for the most vulnerable individuals of society in the first century. And this tells us that the, the office of deacon is, is very important. I think sometimes people can think that there's this hierarchy among the offices. You have the pastor who's number one, then the elders, and then deacon. But that's not the case. These are all offices that are on the same playing field and are just as important as the other ones, although they may have distinctive purposes and goals. 1 Timothy 5, whole epistle about the church and how the church should govern herself. And Paul devotes almost a whole chapter to how the church should care for widows. Paul says to honor those who are truly widows, and those who are truly widows should be enrolled. What does that mean? Supported. If we really do confess, as Jesus tells us, that the family of God is even more fundamental than earthly kin, especially when our earthly kin is outside the kingdom of God, then it would seem to make sense that we would care for people such as widows, those who are destitute and in need of help. James says that the religion that's pure and undefiled before the Lord is visiting and caring for widows and orphans. 
So these words of Jesus clearly were influential upon upon the disciples, those who are watching him, watching his example. And Jesus says, don't be like these scribes who are externally pious, but failing in the most important matter, caring for the weak sheep of Israel. One of the reasons why Jesus says at the end of uh, chapter 20 that these scribes will receive a greater condemnation is because of the office that they had. These were the religious leaders of their day. They had the task of shepherding, caring for God's people. Greater responsibility comes with greater consequence. James 3 says a similar thing. He says, not many of you should become teachers for those who teach will be judged with, with greater strictness. I think Jesus knows that religious leaders oftentimes influence people's conception of God. So if you, if you have religious leaders who are imitating the heart of Christ, then it's going to be a lot easier for those people to conceive of God as gracious, merciful, and compassionate. But if you have religious leaders who look more like these scribes in the heart of Christ, then it may be very difficult for you to conceive of God as long-suffering and merciful and gracious towards you. In fact, many of us here today may have had past experiences in churches or communities where people with spiritual authority have functioned and operated more like the scribes than Christ himself. Individuals who, who may have prayed pious prayers but exploited the weakest among them. And this can have deep and far-reaching consequences upon us. It can cause much hurt and pain and mistrust towards God, towards the visible manifestation of his kingdom here on earth in the local church. But remember, remember that in the midst of whatever hurt or pain you may have experienced from past churches or communities, remember, remember who the real leader of the church is. Remember who the chief shepherd of the church is. Remember the Christ of Psalm 110. Remember that Christ is your king, a king who, yes, came riding on a donkey, but a king who promises to one day come on a war horse, and he will judge every act of evil, whether it be on the cross for those who repent or on judgment day. Christ is your king, a king who watches over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head apart from his benevolent will towards you. Remember that Christ is your priest, a priest who knew all of your sins, your failures, your weakness, but nevertheless, he came to this earth, humbled himself, and shed his blood for you. That this priest continues to work on your behalf at God's right hand as he intercedes for you, prays for you, sympathizes with you, literally co-suffers with you in his humanity. So he looks upon the, the hurt and the pain that you may have experienced, and it breaks his heart. Breaks his heart when he sees those who claim to be under shepherds abusing the weakest of his sheep. But he sees you. He sympathizes with you in that weakness. And so remember, remember, in the midst of your pain, your mistrust, remember that Christ is not only David's Christ, not only David's Lord, but this Christ is your Lord. This Christ is your King, and this Christ is your priest.